This is Victoria of TheUnleashedHeart.com, and you're listening to Grieving Voices, a podcast for hurting hearts who desire to be heard, or anyone who wants to learn how to better support loved ones experiencing loss. As a 30-plus year griever and advanced grief recovery method specialist, I know how badly the conversation around grief needs to change. Through this podcast, I aim to educate grievers and non-grievers alike, spread hope, and inspire compassion toward those hurting. Lastly, by providing my heart with ears and this platform, grievers have the opportunity to share their wisdom and stories of loss and resiliency. How about we talk about grief like we talk about the weather? Let's get started. Hey there, before we get into this week's episode, I just want to give a reminder that this is part two. Part one went live last week. Uh, the full interview is with David Woods Bartley. He is um, an educator in suicide prevention and shares uh, his story through his own experience. In this week's episode, he talks about how you can't drag someone from mental illness to wellness, but gives practical tips about what you can do. He also talks about how suicide isn't the most preventable preventable death, kind of the myth around that, and some other things he mentions as well. But uh, we also dig into forgiveness and the role that it played in his life. And he also shares this beautiful quote that I want to share with you right now. It's by Dr. Drew Ramsey, a psychiatrist, and he said, Someone you see today, your smile, your question, your love could save them. Trust me. They told me it did. This is a very info-packed episode, as well as part one. I hope you listen to them both. If you want to reach out to David, you can find him on his website at davidwoodsbartley.com. I'll also put David's contact information in the show notes, as well as all the resources mentioned in this episode and the last one. Enjoy, and thanks for listening. You know, one of the saddest things for me is to witness people who don't see their own magnificence that don't even see their own potential and i think the saddest thing i'm getting emotional the saddest thing about it is that so many lives are snuffed out that who knows what they could have been yeah and i think of and especially kids um you know when i reached out to you it was um we had learned of a suicide in my area of a ninth grader. Ugh. And, um, and that was actually the day that I emailed you. Really? Yes. The day that I emailed you after I emailed you, I heard of that. I learned of that suicide. It just makes me incredibly sad. How do you help someone see their own magnificence and their own potential? It's, it's really hard. I mean, one of the things that I tell people is, and here's the question I get, it's a variation of what you just asked me, Victoria, is I have somebody that I love and they, they, they're not willing to get help. And I say, here's the thing, you cannot drag somebody from hellness to wellness. You could, you could take them, you could force them to go to a doctor's appointment and stand over them to have them take meds, but it's not going to work. I mean, there's no longevity. In it. So I think to go back and in the midst of somebody's pain, it's the initial step before we go solution oriented. And that's our, our loving intent, our altruistic motivation. I think first it's to create the space to understand the depth of despair that they feel. And again, that may sound counterintuitive, but 
until we clear that out a little bit way, a little way, there's no way they can see their magnet. We have to part the clouds a little bit. And the only way I think we can do that is to allow them to express. And then the follow-up, if we can do that, the follow-up is then, what are the circumstances? What's going on in which you feel good? Like, what's happening? And then they're going to say, well, for me, it was working with the animals. And they're like, wow, what, you know, what's that like? Like, can you tell me a story? Can you do anything? And, then, and you'd say, okay, well, you know, with Joshua. Like, well, what was it like in that moment when you held Joshua that this man gave him to you? It was almost indescribable. And he said, you know, do you think, what did you have to do with that? I mean, how did you participate? I mean, I guess you didn't have to take that dog, right? Like, yeah. So one of the things that my beloved psychiatrist, Dr. C, has suggested, because I still have these negative cognitions, and, and they, they come on a regular basis. My, my beloved, again, my former wife, amazing, and my beloved Summer is amazing, and Summer is particularly interested. She, she hates to see me suffer, and so what she'll do is she'll say, okay, honey, I want you to write down the, the top five negative cognitions that you're having. Worthless, I'm not going to be a good dad, whatever they are. And she'll say, okay, she listens in this profound way. And then she'll say, okay, I hear you, all right? And then she'll say, well, I saw you do this, right? And then didn't you do this? And then you, so she'll outline what the, she's, confronting the negative cognitions with just factual statements. And it's incredibly effective. It is unbelievable. And I keep all of them because the negative cognitions will come back. So I bring that into an answer here that I think one, it's important just like with summer, what summer does is let's first, we need to express what is, what's the negativity that's holding us down right now. And then to change the conversation to potentially allow somebody to just catch a glimpse of a different perspective, just a little bit of a glimpse. And then maybe explore it a little bit better or just a little bit more and just say, well, okay, here's what I saw. You know, what do you think about that? You know, there was one that like, God, I'm never going to be, a, I'm not going to be a good enough provider and everything else. And, and so someone says, well, I think right now you pay for our cell phones, right? Like, yeah, I do. And then you pay for this right now. And then the other month you paid for our electric bill and these other things. She says, you know, for me, that's indication of somebody providing for a family. It is so incredibly effective at changing and really taking, dismantling those negative cognitions. Doesn't mean the negative cognitions are not going to come back. But in that moment, the relief is almost indescribable. Giving you proof of the opposite being true. Exactly. And see, I, you, we can't do that alone. It's impossible. I can't. I don't think we can... You know, we need solitude, but solitude's a choice. Isolation is not. And so we need to have time to meditate, to contemplate, whatever. But we also need the help of other people. And for as 57 years old as a middle-aged man, like, it's okay to ask for help. Like, it's impossible to become well. It's impossible to resolve grief, in my opinion, alone. I don't think you can do it. I, I, I can't. I can't be mentally healthy alone. It's impossible. We uh, heal in community for sure. Exactly. It's exactly. And, and, and hopefully I think, you know, the juxtaposition in terms of the angst and the despair that's going on now, that is hallmarked by isolation. More and more I realize, okay, really the only answer to this, the simple answer is to be connected. You know, you got to be. 
on the national news that I don't know the other night, I don't know if you saw it, but they showed it was like a before and after picture of elderly in mm. in long-term care facilities. And it was it was just I, I mean, just Google it. Um, it was on NBC News, but the before and after of a matter of just like with COVID, the bef- I couldn't even believe the pictures. It was like two different, like one in particular I'm thinking of. Her face was full. She had, you know, color in her cheeks and was smiling. And the next one, it's like she was on her side, her cheeks sunken in. She was on her deathbed. What? And it's isolation is... Yes taking so many people too soon. Well, and this is, you know, I think the monster is licking his chops. I mean, this is exactly what he wants. This is a, it's exactly. And so we had a, one of the horses that came to the sanctuary was a horse named Big Cloud. He was this beautiful, smaller quarter horse, jet black. He, he had grayed in the face. It's beautiful. And well, what had happened was some, I'm use this word liberally, person had enticed Big Cloud into a trailer, probably with some sweet grain or anything taking him away from where he was. And so Big Cloud's probably thinking, oh, we'll go for a ride or whatever. Well, this person moves him out, Victoria, into this desolate place, brings, takes Big Cloud out of the trailer and then drives away, leaves him there to die. And I think that that's, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's a paradox that I know a lot of people, a lot of people, I've heard, it's not uncommon to hear from people who suffer from schizophrenia and hearing voices that at the beginning, the voices are, they're friendly. They're supportive. They're kind. Depression at the beginning, there is a certain familiarity and comfort around it. It's kind of, it's weird. And so it, it, I mentioned that because I think that that's the sweet grain that these maladies entice us into this vehicle, but ultimately they transport us to isolation and leave us to die. Now in Big Cloud's case, by the grace of, of life, a ranger in his non-regular route, discovered this horse. Like, why is this horse here? And he came to live with us and lived an amazing life. Fell in love with Dolly. Oh, God. Dolly was this older white Arabian. Oh, my God. He was so smitten. And you know what's interesting about that? So they were always together. Dolly died. And Deanna and her brilliance, she allowed Big Cloud to just stay. And, and this we, the renderer, we couldn't do anything with her body for like four days. So she was, you know, covered and everything else. Victoria, Big Cloud stayed with her the entire time, never left. And when the rendering truck came to take her body away, we had Deanna said, we need to let Cloud be here. And so he saw her body be taken away. And then he stayed in the pasture for a while. And then at one point after a time, he went back to the other pasture and stood at the gate saying, you know what, I'm ready to rejoin the herd. So, and we saw that at the sanctuary so many different times in which animals so openly revealed and expressed and then ultimately resolved their grief. They didn't, they didn't try to avoid it. Just like, okay, we're going to delve into it head on. And I think in that regard, they were very mentally well. And, you know, it's funny because looking back now, Dee and I had established a whole person care system for the animals because we cook for them. We had practitioners come, so their body was taken care of. Their psychological being was was supported in a safe environment, and then they were connected. They, they had a foundation. They had, a, albeit a spiritual certainty, about what was going on. And so, I think that model, if we 
transpose it or transfer it to as an example for human wellness. That's it. Learn from nature, right? Oh, man. I mean, you want to talk about. So I'm working on a book. It's funny. Let's <laughs> just laugh at the title. It came from life. It didn't come from me. So the book is They Pooped, We Scooped, Unexpected Wisdom Picked Up at, a sanct- at an Animal Sanctuary. Sounds like a movie. No, I know, right? <laughs> It'll be fun. These are, there's all these different stories. Um, there is, though. Isn't there a movie based on a true story of a man that opened a, anim- an animal no, sanctuary? No, no, yeah. There's, I think there's a couple. One is, I think didn't Matt, uh, Matt Damon played in the one. Yeah, we right. opened an animal sanctuary. I think that was even the title. Zoo. I thought it was Zoo. Oh, they we opened a zoo. Oh, yeah. okay. Okay. No, and there's some amazing people who are doing great work in sanctuaries all over the, you know, the, the granddaddy of them all is best friends in Utah. And they have somewhere close to 3,000 animals. Um, there's another one in New Hampshire called Rolling Dog, which is incredible. They take special needs animals. There's a great place in Southern California called Gentle Barn. Um, there's an organization, they used to be in California and New York called Farm Sanctuary. So, and then, especially in the dog world, dog and horse in particular, there, there is hundreds upon hundreds of small independent rescue organizations that come to be because of an individual's love for a particular dog. I, I guarantee there's a Havanese rescue, certainly our Boston Terrier rescues and everything. And these people work basically with no money and they, they're tireless because they want to help this these beings that mean so much to them so a lot of our animals came from different frontline rescue organizations when they had an animal that was almost impossible to adopt because we did no adoption so they would give us the old ones and the sick ones and so there are great people out there doing amazing work how did you move beyond that grief of losing that thing that was so important to you the sanctuary I well, still, I mean, and, and your spouse, I mean, at the time too, I mean, you lost everything. No, so, it was, yeah, I'm still processing. It, it, I still, and you know, it's interesting, Victoria, it's, you know, again, our timing, I just realized this at the moment. I've in particular, and I'm sure there's some part of the COVID thing. I also think in an ongoing commitment, the one thing I'll give myself credit for is to be re- incredibly consistent on self-care. Um, that some of the other things have been processed and moved away. And so like you had talked about, there's, there's some, I mean, we all, I shared with you, we had 90 animals die in 20 years. I mean, and it was so busy. Sometimes an animal would die in the morning and then another new one would come in the afternoon because there was so few places for the type of animals in that state would come. And so, right. It's just been interesting the last couple of months, like the, the grief around the sanctuary and the loss is just like, Man. And so I, I try to remember grief has arrived not to annihilate me, but to support me, to allow me to, to cry a lot. Um, I write different stories um, when I tell these stories about the animals. Um, I still have shame around the fact that I lost everything. And that is dangerous because then that can, the monster can grab a hold of that. So I would love to say that I have processed all my grief, but there are some parts, you know, I may continue to grieve for maybe the rest of my life. And, and you know, I don't say that in a debilitating way. It's just, it's really, 
you know, to, to have something in which I thought was going to be the rest of my life, to have it be taken away, um, it's, that's hard. You're really, really difficult. Um, but thankfully, I don't, I don't endeavor, I, I am working my way through with a lot of people now, like, and with you, that I get to have this beautiful relationship with you, somebody I can talk specifically about grief with. Well, and I don't think we necessarily ever arrive unless we become mm-hmm. monks. You know, I think we're always going to be processing and peeling back the layers and kind of really learning how to unlearn a lot of the unhelpful and hurtful things that we put in our backpacks growing up as children. Because actually, this circles back to a point that I actually wanted to bring up is that when trauma doesn't have to be molestation, sexual abuse, anything like that. And I want to circle back to that because one of the very first losses children often have is a pet loss. Right. And so coming back to like, you know, your animal sanctuary and things like that, that can be traumatic for a child and pet loss and miscarriage are two of the most minimized losses. And so what is a parent's first instinct when the child loses a pet? Well, that's okay, Johnny, we'll get another one. Right. David, let's just go to the pet store. We can get another one. Not really acknowledging and let the child process and share how they their feelings of losing the first pet that they felt connection to. Right. Right. Let's just replace it. And so that's the very first lesson most of us receive as children about how to process grief. We don't process it. We just replace it with something else. Right. Something no, else I, to make I, us feel better, right? I agree 100%. And, and I think, not to shame myself, and, and I can, without it being an excuse, I, I think how busy Dee and I were. I mean, on the one hand, you could look and say, well, didn't you do that? Didn't you just replace them? And say, no, I mean, I think it was different. And I think one of the things, you know, I, both Dee and I would agree, the sanctuary became too big. And, you know, we should have top capped it at a certain amount. Um, maybe there would have been spaces in our, in our life at that point to be able to process loss. Um, and every animal that, that transitioned did so in an incredibly dignified, beautiful manner. It would, there was a ceremony and this beautiful accord. And they were, I used to tell the animals, okay, here's your job. You know what your job is? To be adored. That's it. That's all you got to do. And so they were cared for and loved in ways that were extraordinary and, and passed in their own time. And just the remnants of it, you know, remain on me. It, it's, it is. It, it, it's hard, but I know grief is not here to beat me up. You know, grief, and you and I talked about this, it's, it, it sounds almost weird, but grief is my friend. You know, it's, it's my teacher. It's been my teacher. Yeah. It's, and it, you know, and then, you know, grief of losing my father, grief of losing my innocence, all these different things that, you know, there's so many aspects of grief and like trauma is trauma and grief is grief. It's all individualized. It's personal. It doesn't, something that doesn't traumatize me can traumatize you. Doesn't, you know what? And so we need to just be accepting and there is no timetable for healing of trauma or healing of grief. You know what? Take as long as you need. Time just passes. It's what, it's the action you take in time that matters. It's that, you know, what between the two dashes um, in terms of dates, time you live and the time that you die is there anything else i mean i feel like this was such a very very deep good conversation oh i just i'm so blessed that we have connected 
Um, I feel like there needs to be two, like a part two or something. Um, I, a lot, I have a lot more stories. There is, I, you know, and I, 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 this thing, I would highly recommend Johan's TED Talk. It is fun. And he tells the story, this goes back to the whole thing of connection, that there, this was a, a, a scientific study that we've all heard of it, that, you know, you, they put a rat in a cage and there was a bottle of cocaine lace water and regular water and the rat always went to the cocaine lace water killed himself like oh my god that's what humans are doing and somebody came along later and said uh hold on rats are very social you have isolated this being so they they recreated the experiment and so they made like ratopia there were other rats there were hills there were tunnels there was food and there was water and the same two bottles didn't drink the cocaine water didn't really didn't and it made make sense because they were connected they're part of a tribe so you know we and especially around grief, you know, somebody takes what we would consider in our, in, in my ignorance, what's well, taking you too long, not so much now, but it's taking you too long to get over this. It doesn't matter how long it takes. It's okay. But if we, if they feel misunderstood, they're going to retreat. And then they're going to fall back into the, the caustic arms of the monster. And there's where be, it's kind of like big cow going into that, that horse trailer. There's a certain bizarre enticement and nobody understands me, but this feeling of despair, if nothing else is familiar and there's a certain comfort because I know what it feels like. I can hang out here because nobody understands me. People think I'm being stupid. People, people don't understand that I can't get out of bed because depression is literally weighing me down. Why am I crying or I can't do my job or whatever it is? Why, why did I want to kill myself? Why have I attempted suicide? Not in my case, but why am I cutting? Why, why have I attempted suicide more than one? Whatever it is, because we don't understand when people, when we feel misunderstood, we're going to retreat. We're going to retract. And if we get too far down into that hole, it's like that beautiful ninth grader. There's no coming back. No. And I don't, you know, they say, I don't know if I agree with this per se, you know, they say that suicide is the most preventable form of death. I don't know if, you know, I, I, think, I think the problem I have with that is there's the one way that that comes out is that it's all our responsibility to save one another. And that's, I don't think that's true. I mean, there are certain people that are going to die from suicide. It's just, that's a fact. It's just the way that it is. And I'm not being cavalier about that, but that, that's just the way that it is. You cannot drag somebody to wellness. There needs to be a responsibility on the person. I'm not saying it's easy, but I think to suggest it's the most preventable form of death, what that also would say is that the, that it's a person is capable of completely resolving trauma and grief and everything else. And I, I mean, sometimes it's just, I think it's too much. It's just too much. And, and I, I say it to just to add in, I think what's important is an aspect of realism. Because they think if we don't and we lose somebody to suicide, I think we feel like we failed. And then we feel misunderstood. So I think it's, you know, I'm contrarian to, to some of the things that are said in regards to it. Um, the, other, the other thing that comes up, which I don't agree with, is this whole notion that we, those of us who are contemplating and then attempt suicide, really what we should do, we need to know what the impact is going to be on other people. And I'm like, Okay, that's illogical because in that moment that I was going to kill myself, I honestly believed that Deanna and the sanctuary and everybody would be far better off. So you're asking me to consider something that's completely arbitrary to how I feel in the moment. I'm not saying that that's not important, but 
I think if we try to have that be like as a missionary statement, like, okay, well, the way we're going to end suicide is if people realize in that moment that it would, the ripple effect would be devastating. Okay. That doesn't work. It yeah. Doesn't. You wouldn't be having that conversation if, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah it helps me, you know, it helps me now when Summer and my sweetheart will sit with me and if I have a suicidal thought and, and we'll talk about what would be the impact you know, the likelihood is negligible at this point, but I still have the thought. And someone will say, what would the impact be like on grace? I'm like, okay, I get it. Like, now I understand. But I wouldn't have understood that nine years ago. You have to arrive at this point of understanding. And so I just think, you know, as we, as we endeavor to overcome these maladies, we have to approach it differently. And I think there's a lot of good messages in which if you look at what we can do for a suicidal friend, it's first, talk to him, you know? And that's why question, persuade, and refer. Just question the person, persuade them to stay alive, and then refer them to get help. It's CPR for mental health. You're, you are completely capable of doing that now. And it's leveraging, ultimately, understanding to create connection. That's it. And then you escort them, you journey with them, you companion with them to, to somebody who can offer professional support. Our job is not to save people. That's not what we're supposed to do. Our actions ultimately may, but if we go into that with that's our intent, we're going to screw it up. Two things I want to bring up before we close our conversation. In grief recovery, we try to get people to understand that they don't need to take 100% responsibility for themselves or their lives. They only need to take 1% responsibility, Mm. at least just 1% responsibility. Got it. So my next question for you then is what role did forgiveness play for you, not only of yourself, but for others in your um, turning your life around? That's such a great question. Yeah, that's, I mean, the, the most difficult has been, of course, to forgive myself, which I still have a hard time doing. Um, and there's where the negative cognition sitting with my love be really helpful. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there were some folks, especially at the end, that I think the ending could have been really different in terms of how the sanctuary ended. And it's interesting, if you Google my name, like the second thing that comes up is this person who was a board member accused us of of fraud at the end, which ultimately there was none. And then if you read through the whole article, it was like how many tens of thousands of dollars that we gave and everything else. But I'm like, why did you do that? I mean, just so I've forgiven that person. You know, to, to, you know, I remember hearing somebody say that when you, if I were to hold anger with somebody, in fact, what I've done is really, I, I've connected myself with them energetically. And so the forgiveness is probably more beneficial for me than for them. And then I think maybe probably one of the worst things I could do is, is if I ever saw this person again, is to say, well, I forgive you. Well, they may not think they've done anything that needs to be forgiven. And so the forgiveness is about me and it's, it's better. I'm getting better and better and better. And the more that I'm able to do it, it's, it helps. So I, I think I have forgiven, I mean, I've taken responsibility. I've endeavored to make amends to my former beloved and our neighbors and, and the things and even the slight errors that I thought that I had made and, and to express my grief and sorrow that things didn't end differently. So I feel like I've, I've done the best that I could do to make amends, to, to take responsibility. And there's still some remnants. And so anytime I have a thought of unforgiveness for others, I try to process that. And in all, to be fully transparent, I still have a really difficult time 
forgiving myself. It's hard. I think gosh, I, I should have done this different. I should have done this different. And there's, you know, thank God because of the extraordinary soul I have as a partner and the, and the other one that I had too, the other person who just helped me to look at, okay, you know what? Yes. Mistakes happen. You know, if there's somebody, a dear friend of mine was given a talk and, and talked about this whole thing of forgiveness. And she said, well, maybe look at it this way. If it happened again, would you do the same thing? I'm like, wow. No, I wouldn't. I would have done a whole bunch of stuff different. At the core, I would still be taking care of the animal, but there would be a whole bunch of stuff that I would have done different. She says, okay, then you know what? You learn from it. You know, ultimately, you got to just got to give yourself a break. It's hard, at least for me. So that ties into my ne- next question or point um, or thing I want to ask you. So in grief and when you feel like that, sh- when you have that shame and things like that, we have this self- self-loathing. So what does self-love, the opposite of self-loathing, what does self-love look like to you now? Like, how do you... You know, and that's difficult too. Um, so I'm really good at working out. And, and yet there's almost no morning that I wake up, and, hey, ready to go work out. And yet I do my thing, you know, and it's... So what I will oftentimes do is I'll look in the mirror and say, you know what, you didn't want to do it and you did it. Like that's really good. So I'll, I will look for ways, small ways in which I can use the word stomach. That's maybe not people, in which I can accept the acknowledgement of myself. Like, okay, you know what, you've done a good job. And so I think that's at the feeling emotional level in which I can look at myself sometimes literally because I, I have a body dysmorphia thing, I'm sure from being raped and some other stuff, but I just, I don't like to look at myself and I will endeavor to try to, to force myself and then give myself some sort of affirmation. I just, you know what? I think the best thing that I will say to myself, and it feels good is say, you know what? You're a good dude. You really, you're a really good dude. You're really endeavoring. Yeah. And then, and when I do it, it, it feels really good. So it's a work in progress. I, I wish, I really wish it wasn't so hard. You know, I, I, I battled myself for 50 some years and I still do. Um, it would be, you know, I have some momentary feeling experiences when I'm not, when I'm not in opposition myself. And it's just like, man, that feels, my God, that feels good. You know, like if my own worst enemy is myself, like that person just didn't show up at that. It's, it's tough. You know, I, I don't know if I'd have the same level of difficulty if I didn't have this condition. And, and I was thinking it kind of, circle all the way back would i have this condition without the trauma that i experienced i don't know i mean i would venture to say no because my three brothers who i adore they don't have this they don't so they had the same father and they were older when my dad died but they hadn't suffered this other trauma so thank god they don't i'm kind of meandering question mark or answer was sorry no it's i think i think we could probably talk another two hours um i would love to i just want to share there's one book that I read not long ago, um, I don't know if you've read it, but Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself, Dr. Joe Dispenza, wow. just ties in with what we were just talking about, because um, okay. you said something and that reminded me of the book title. And uh, the other book I'm reading right now is Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends on It. And I think it does. Yes. And that, I think that's, um, I'm not quite halfway through it, but I think you'll like that book too just talking about self-loathing to self-love. And I think just sharing what I've shared and you share what you shared. I, I just think that 
the the one truth that I feel now for me is true for me. I don't know that we can give to others what we can't give to ourselves. No, I agree. I, you know what? I totally agree. No. And so, you know, I, I feel not pressure, but I'm motivated to resolve this within myself so I can give it to the kids and my beloved and the world. But no, I, I, I agree. Um, what's there's a, um, I'm gonna use the G word just, just because it'll put it in better context. This great minister who has since made his transition, but a big influence. I love his talking. He, he had said, God can only do for us what God can do through us. So in other words, so yeah, it, it's, it, you know, we can't give away what we don't have. It's impossible. And there's where, you know, I think this whole aspect of self-care, <clears throat> if you say, well, you need to prioritize your self-care and put your self-care on a pedestal. People say, oh, no, no, no. You got to put other people first. But okay. You know what? That's doomed to failure. If your cup is empty, if your tank is empty, you have nothing to give. So if I have, if I, if my, if I'm not able to love myself, or let me put it this way, I'm going to be able to love the kids in summer to the extent that I love myself. When I switch it like that, I'm like, ooh, ooh I need to, ooh, okay, all right, I got to make a change because I want to love more, principally because it makes me feel good, you know? I, I feel good. And if that's selfish, so be it. But the better I feel, the more I'm able to be of service to other people. Exactly. I got to read something. This is the other book, My Grandfather's Blessing. So check this out. By Show Off Girl. So freaking brilliant. I would love, this would be on my, this is on my bucket list now, is to meet Dr. Remen. She lives in North California. She must be hiding because I can't find her. Anyway, this is so cool. She says, the best definition of service I have come across is the single word belonging. Service is the final healing of isolation and loneliness. It is the lived experience of belonging. So it's, it's all these things that we do in support of one another. Ultimately, we're the greatest benefactor. Because, you know, when we feel like, I, I mean, I'm certain you feel the same way, when we feel like we belong, to something, to somebody, somewhere, at some time, in some place, it's all good, you know, or at least it makes it, it it's, it's copable, if that's a word, I don't know if that's a word, but yeah, it's, and it's the last thing, last story, I'll let you go, because I could talk to you for hours, hope awakens harmony, and, and here's what, so we had two puppies at the sanctuary, most everybody else, so we, <clears throat> we had one non-rescued dog, her name is, I'm crazy about Boston Terrier, so Hope was this brindle-colored, gorgeous, cute, ridiculously wonderful pup. And so while we were waiting for Hope to be weaned from her mom, Deanna went on the dreaded Pet Finder, which is the best pet adoption site in the world. And she came to me and she says, you know, what do you think about this? And it was this picture of an eight, another eight-week-old Boston Terrier puppy, but jet black with this very devilish smile. I'm like, why is this dog on Pet Finder? Well, come to find out she was 100% deaf. And I'm like, what in the hell are we going to do with a deaf dog? Well, I lost, thankfully, I lost the argument and we got Harmony. So we picked up Hope on a, Harmony on a Sunday, Hope on a Monday. And so here's what would happen. I would come into the house and Hope would come to greet me. And then she would turn around and she'd go wake up her sister Harmony who couldn't hear. Then she'd bring Harmony. So Hope awakens Harmony. 
And they'd be there and all Hope and Harmony wanted to do is just be with me. There was no demands. They just wanted me to get on my hands and my knees and to cover me with kisses and affirmations and love and to say, Papa, come sit down on the, on the couch with us and let's take a nap. And, and I think it's the same thing in our life is that hope never comes alone. Hope always brings something with it. It could be patience and understanding, but I think it oftentimes is harmony because inherent in harmony, when things are harmonious, like there's a certain aspect of certainty and reliability, like, you know what? It's all going to be okay. And so whatever we can do to step into the door and to be welcomed by hope, we can be guaranteed that hope is going to awaken something else. Most often, it's going to be harmony. There's another book title. I know. I know. Hope Awakens Harmony. I know. And Har, oh my God, Harmony, she had the loudest bark. I mean, it was screeching. It was just like screeching. I don't know because she couldn't hear herself. I mean, she was one hundred. People would say, don't you want to get her hearing checked? I'm like, okay, let me show you. Let me scream at her. But the other thing is, hope has an aroma. Hope has a certain scent. So in the times when, say, Hope was with mom or something, and I would walk into the house and Harmony was fast asleep, hence the true the, the truth is deaf dogs get the best sleep in the house. That's just the way it is. So in those instances in which Hope wasn't there to awaken her, I would walk up. And this is what happened every time. Sometimes it was instant. Sometimes it would take a minute. Harmony, all of a sudden, Victoria would boom her head would swing, I mean, just pop up. Like all of a sudden she could hear and I yelled her name. Well, her scent was so enhanced because of her deafness, you have to think. And then out of a million different scents, somehow she could distinguish mine. And what she would do is her head would pop up and then she would focus her eyes and she would see it was me. And she'd come running at me and dive literally put her head right in the middle of my chest and move back and forth and then take like these little bites of my skin which hurt like she was with this part me this this being that meant more to her than anything in the world and so she was awakened by the aroma of hope and again i think that you know we can be in this catatonic state of of grief or mental illness or whatever it is and that little essence of hope it has a very distinct aroma and, and it can awaken us from our slumber and, and ideally, you know, move us into a different place that if nothing else in the moment feels better. So do you think it's part synchronicity, happenstance, and maybe a little bit of intuition as to what we find then that helps us awaken? Oh, absolutely. No, no, I, absolutely. And I think it's, you know, there's this great, again, I, I don't propose any sort of spirituality. I, I, in my own, I'm radically inclusive of life. <laughs> but there's this great, and I, I think it's an African proverb, of pray and move your feet. So in other words, I think we all are gifted with this sense of intuition, but then we, it needs to be activated. So serendipity, you and I, so we could have met, but never had this. So there was the, the, the universe gave us the gift. The universe orchestrated things so that you and I could meet. Then it says stuff, what are we going to do with it? So we spend this first two hours of our relationship being incredibly connected. So I think it is. But you could also do too much activity and not have enough kind of sacred consideration of what's going on, too. So my mother, Suzanne, used to always like to say, she'd say, honey, moderation is the key. 
So mom was talking, it's all about balance, you know? Too much of anything, too much sunshine burns you. Yeah, no, so I, I agree with you, you said it beautiful. And I think ultimately we know what's in our best interest, we do. Sometimes though, more often than not, we just need people heading down that road is too scary to do it alone. And like, I don't need you to say anything. I just, would you just please go with me? And I think that that's like, okay. And, and we can do that for one another. You know, we can drive with somebody to go to their doctor's appointment. You know, hey, this is the first time you've taken medication. How about I go to the pharmacy with you? And they may not want it, but imagine somebody offering that. You know, like on the first day that you're going to take medication, like, would you like me to go with you to the pharmacy and we can pick that up together? And I think it is those simple acts. It's just, they come with what I call the power of an unexpected gesture because we don't, we don't expect people to do those sorts of things. So good. <laughs> You're so good. Thank is you. there is there anything else that you would like to share? Yeah, I mean the big the thing is I, I think uh, if you can handle one more story, I'll try to abbreviate it. I just I hadn't told this. I just told this for the first time last night. I've written about it. So here's the truth. I think what happens is we, we see a circumstance. It goes back to this whole thing that I think oftentimes we're, we don't think we're qualified or capable. But what if I told you that you can save a life just by sitting down? So one of the Boston Terriers that came to the sanctuary was dog named Murphy. And again, you had to fit into one of these four categories. And when Murphy arrived, I'm like, my God, this dog is stunningly gorgeous. Got along with everybody, loved Deanna and I. And I'm like, okay, someone like kind of slipped him in on the radar. Like he had no special need at all. But not long after he got there, the first time he ate, he ate and ate and ate and then threw up everything. So I thought, okay, maybe he's a little nervous. Well, it happens the next day, same thing. Happens the next day, same thing. Like, okay, well, something must be wrong. Take him to the vet. So like, God, I mean, his vitals are good. And we don't, I don't know, nothing's wrong. And so it keeps going on. Well, Deanna... It's just this amazing soul. And every animal that came to the sanctuary became her baby. And so she's like, okay, we're going to figure this out. And so lo and behold, Deanna figures out that Murphy has this thing called mega esophagus. So in other words, his esophagus is enlarged to the point where it doesn't contract. It can't do its job to take the food from the mouth and the throat down to the stomach. And absent that, a dog standing on all fours. So what happens is he'll die because he eats it goes partway down the throat, but it, the esophagus doesn't move it along. And so he doesn't throw up, he regurgitates. It looks the same, but it's different. So dogs die from this. So Dee is like, okay, well, that ain't going to happen on, on my watch. So she comes up with this brilliant solution. She watches Murphy eat, and she knows the point, the exact time when he's eaten enough and, but he's, you know, he's, he's about to regurgitate. And so she scoop him up and prop him up, head and back against her chest. And she'd say, okay, babe, sit down. And then she'd give Murphy to me, just like you would with, imagine like the crown jewels being passed over. And then I would sit there with Murph, his back against my chest, his head on my shoulder, his whiskers tickling my cheek. And a lot of times we would just fall asleep. In that position, just propping him up, Life, as gravity, did the job of malfunctioning anatomy and brought the food down into the place where then if we sat there long enough, we could consume it. And Murph always knew when the time was up, it was usually about 30 minutes or so, and then he would jump down and play. And so that's how his life was saved. 
you save a life by sitting down. And I think the same thing that's happening, be it grief or anything else, is we can have a seat and have a conversation with somebody. We can have a seat and have a meal. We can have a seat and watch a movie. We can have a seat and go visit them in the psychiatric hospital. We can have a seat in our car and trance and go with them somewhere. We can all save lives just by sitting down. And so I think my final message is just that, just never underestimate, kind of paraphrasing what the great Maya, Maya Angelou said, <clears throat> never underestimate what an individual's small act of kindness can do to change a life. And in fact, <clears throat> I'll end with this last thing and I promise I will let you go. There's an amazing psychiatrist, Dr. Drew Ramsey in New York, and he has this one quote, in which he talks about the issue of suicide as a problem and a solution. One short paragraph. These are Dr. Ramsey's words, not mine. Dr. Ramsey tells us, someone you see today is thinking about killing themselves. Your smile, your question, your love could save them. Trust me, they told me it did. That's impactful. He's a pretty cool dude. He's a brilliant guy. Well, folks, if uh, you don't look at your dog the same after today... <laughs> Jiggy's outside the door right now, kind of whining. I'm like, okay, Jiggy. Oh, <laughs> But no, really, I mean, it makes it memorable. Like the storytelling of all the stories that you've shared makes it memorable. It makes it relatable. It makes it impactful. That's genius, by the way. And I, I just love how you've tied it into your message. Well, thank you thank so you. much. Well, yeah, and all credit to my former beloved and the great people and the amazing animals and you are so welcome. And again, I can never thank you enough for what you're doing to take this topic and have it be your passion and to be of selfless service to so many people. You, you're a lot like you may not be given the gift to know how many people that you save and, and unburden, but it's a new one. And because you don't just help that person, that person then helps somebody else and somebody else and somebody else and somebody else. And somebody else. So, it is my mission that we talk about grief like we talk about the weather. Mm. Got it. And I say, let's make mental illness a casserole disease. When someone comes home and is suffering from mental illness, let's bring them a baked good just like we would in any other instance. I love that. I love that. So many quotes. So many quotes. Kind of goofy. Oh, I love it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to, I might do this in two parts, actually, this podcast episode. Um, and please know whatever I can do to, to serve you or anybody else, you know, if somebody that wants to talk or whatever, or want to hear a story, just I'm here to serve. It's my job. I love it. Um, I'm actually going to put all the things that you mentioned in the show notes, reference in the show notes. And thank you. Thank it's you for so the work that you're doing. Thank you. Uh, for sharing your story, for going first. It's uh, like I said, we never fully arrive, no. but we never... We shouldn't no. be journeying alone. No, no. Amen. Well, you are a delight and a joy, and I have a new lifelong friend. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for your trust and confidence. Thank you for choosing me. My intuition. There you go. <laughs> nice. Well, hug, hug Gizmo for me. Air hugs. Air hugs, right on. Thank you so much. Um, and everybody, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, or two. I think I might do two. I don't know. We'll see. But if this was helpful to you, please share it with somebody you know or love and share the love on Apple Podcasts. If you know, leave a review for David's fantastic words of wisdom. And remember, 
When you unleash your heart, you unleash your life. Much love. From my heart to yours, thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please share it, because sharing is caring. And until next time, give and share compassion by being a heart with ears. And if you're hurting, know that what you're feeling is normal and natural. Much love, my friend.